Um, well, I want to thank you guys for having us. Thank you guys for inviting us here. It, it means a lot um, to have you guys here. We, um, and, and also thank you for, for praying for, uh, for our denomination, for the sending, sending efforts of our denomination when you give towards things like the cooperative program and to things like Lottie Moon and Andy Armstrong. Um, your, your, your support uh, goes to, to families like ours that are looking to make Jesus known and start new churches around the world. So we, we appreciate you guys praying for, for efforts like that. Um, but but we, I want you guys to know to hear from me personally, we love you guys. We love our Christ Fellowship family. Um, Elizabeth, was, my wife, was a member at Renewal and then later at the church at Cherrydale when she was a college student at North Greenville. Um, and I have been on staff with the church at Greer Station since we planted. Um, and so we love this family of churches, even though we haven't been able to spend a lot of time specifically with you guys. Um, we have known about and prayed about the work that, um, that has been going on at this church since, since it started um, and have a deep affection for you guys. I, uh, I first got to know Robert when I was a, a young, fresh intern right out of college at the Church of Greer Station, and he uh, mischievously tried to sow seeds of discord between me and the pastors and get me fired on multiple occasions. Uh, but thankfully, that was not successful. Um, and But no, seriously, through the years, I have gotten to know Robert through things like Summerlink and Runner's Camp, um, trips to down to Charleston and trips to state conventions and Pillar Network events. Um, and Robert has become a really dear friend and someone that I admire and respect and look up to a lot. And so we, we really love you guys. And as we get ready to move, as we get ready to head to Halifax, Nova Scotia to plant a new brand new church. It means the world to us that we don't just have the support of the church at Greer Station, but that we have the love and backing of a whole family of churches behind us, a whole network of churches that have a mutual love and respect and admiration for each other, um, and that we know as we go that we don't only have our church, but we have you, you guys in our corner. Now, as most of you are probably aware, today is Father's Day. And one thing that I have learned since becoming a dad to two little boys, uh, one who is two and one who's now four, is that there is no end to the number of things that I will be invited, commanded, urged, and begged to come and see. My name is frequently called, and I respond with something along the lines of, what do you need, buddy? only to be answered with, I can't tell you. You have to come and see this. You have to come and see. And what awaits me on the other end falls into a wide array of categories. I'm never quite sure what I'm gonna find. I might be coming to see that Coleman can stand on one leg. I might be coming to find out that Iron Man has lost a leg and it needs to be put on. I might be coming to find out that Gilbert has lost a leg. I don't know, I'm not sure. But one thing is for sure, I just will not get the full effect unless I come and see. It can't be adequately explained from the couch. Whether I'm coming to see someone shoot a basket or a cool pose that an action figure has struck, whatever it is, it's so great, so mesmerizing, so awe-inspiring that it has to be seen. Wherever I'm sitting, whatever I'm doing, there can be no rest until I come and see. So today, I want to take a look at the Gospel of John, 
And we're going to see Jesus, and in turn, Jesus' disciples extend a similar invitation. Come and see. But before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help. Father, you are the source of all good things. You're the giver of all good gifts. You are the one that through the work of Jesus on the cross and the resurrection has overcome. And we pray that because of that, that we would be a people who seek you above all else. That like your word says, that we would also be those who, who persevere to the end and overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. And as we open your word today, we pray that you would give us understanding, that we would not come full of hostilities and presuppositions, but that we would come to your text with, with hearts of flesh instead of hearts of stone, hearts that are ready to receive and to change and to be molded where you need to shape us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now, we're going to be reading from the first chapter of John's gospel. So, John was a fisherman who Jesus invited to follow him, and he became one of Jesus' disciples. John traveled with Jesus throughout his ministry on earth, and he's actually the one disciple that we know was there with Jesus on the cross as Jesus was killed. In fact, John was so deeply and personally humbled and affected by Jesus' work on his behalf that in this book, he doesn't refer to himself by name, but he instead refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. John saw the risen Jesus alive after the resurrection. He became an important leader in the early church, and he sat down to write this eyewitness gospel account of Jesus' life and ministry. And here in chapter 1, we're actually going to read about Jesus calling some of his first followers, some of those first disciples. So if you would, let's read John chapter 1, starting in verse 35. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and noticed them following him, he asked them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and you'll see, he replied. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John and followed him. He first found his own brother Simon and told him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought Simon to Jesus. When Jesus saw him, he said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He found Philip and told him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter, and Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and so did the prophets, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathanael asked him. Come and see, Philip answered. Then Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said about him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, Jesus answered. Rabbi, Nathanael replied, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus responded to him, do you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. Then he said, truly, I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. 
Now, just as a note, when we first start going through this passage, uh, there are a couple Johns mentioned here in the passage, and neither of them are the John that wrote this book. So you see John, in the first verse, we see the, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. And then later on, you're going to see that Andrew and Simon are the son of John. So there's a John who's Simon and Andrew's dad, and then there's a John who, here in the beginning, has disciples who are following him and hears him point Jesus out. So this John that's listed here in verse 35 is actually John the Baptist, not the author of this book, not the disciple that followed Jesus. Now, John the Baptist was a prophet, a preacher sent by God, actually Jesus's cousin, who was sent to prepare the people of Israel for Jesus's coming. And John spoke as one who was from God. His message was compelling, and he drew a crowd. He proclaimed that the kingdom of God was at hand, that the deliverer, the long-awaited deliverer was coming, was soon to arrive. And this is exactly where our passage today begins, with John proclaiming this message, that the kingdom of God was coming, and seeing Jesus passing by, and here in verse 35, saying, look, the Lamb of God, the one that I've been telling you about. And who hears him say this? Who hears him point out Jesus and say, look, the Lamb of God? Two of his disciples, two of John's followers. John had already started to gain some followers. And when Jesus comes along, John says, there's the one that I've been telling you about. And naturally, as they should, some of John's followers leave to follow Jesus. Because the one that they've been hearing about from John that's made them stay with him and follow him, John says, there he is. So the natural uh, next step is to leave John and follow Jesus. So these two disciples of John, one of whom we will learn is Andrew, are following Jesus, and Jesus turns around and asks them a question. He says, what are you looking for? Now, maybe we're tempted to hear this question from Jesus a little bit abruptly. Maybe we hear Jesus ask them what they're looking for, kind of like uh, Dory spinning around to say, why you follow me, huh? Huh? Why are you following me? Um, but I think Jesus is asking a very genuine and important question here. He's asking them, what are you looking for? These are disciples who have been following John. And now they're coming to, and they want to learn from Jesus and follow Jesus. And Jesus wants to know, what's your intent? What's your goal? What are you searching for? What do you hope to find? What are you looking for? And again, Andrew and his friend's response might at first blush seem a little bit strange to us. Jesus turns to them and says, what are you looking for? And here in verse 37, they said to him, Rabbi, where are you staying? Maybe that sounds a little stalkerish. What are you looking for? Uh, where are you staying tonight? But essentially what they're saying here is we're looking for you. Where are you going? Because that's where we're going as well. What, what are you looking for? What are you hoping to find? Well, where are you staying? Where are you going? Because that's where we're going too. Because what we're looking for is you. Rabbi, we believed John and he said you're the Lamb of God. And so wherever you go, that's where we want to be. What we're looking for is you. I don't know what that means. I don't know where you're going to take this. I don't know what you're going to do. I don't know where you're staying. I don't know where we're going to go. But whatever it is, that's what we're looking for. Now, you might remember answering questions similar to this when you first fell in love. When you got asked questions like, if you could live anywhere, where would it be? And you're tempted to answer something like, um, I wasn't planning to move anywhere further than Hendersonville, but if you said you wanted to move to Antarctica, that would probably be on the top of my list as well. 
That's how we answer questions. We meet someone, we find someone that we are so devoted to, so in love with, that it's like, you're asking me what I'm looking for, where I'm going, what I want, what the intent is. However I need to answer that question that means I'm with you, that's how I'm going to answer that question. How many kids do you want to have? Um, somewhere, anywhere between 1 and 30. Whatever that number is you're thinking of, strange coincidence, that's also always been the number that I've had in my head as well. Whatever, wherever you're going, whatever you want, all of a sudden that sounds really good to me too. So Andrew and his friend here are saying, Rabbi, we just want to follow you. That's what we're looking for. We just want to follow you. And how does Jesus respond? Verse 39, Jesus replies, come and you'll see. Jesus invites them to come and see. An invitation which I would argue becomes a paradigm for evangelism and discipleship throughout the rest of John's gospel and throughout the New Testament. Come and see. Come to Jesus and see. See everything, that, find everything that you're looking for. And, and a lot of things that you're not. And the two disciples come. Andrew and his friend come. They come and stay with Jesus. It says, they went and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. So they come, and believe me, they will see. Andrew's going to spend the next three years with Jesus, and at this point, he can't even imagine the things that he's going to see. He's going to see, even just here in John's gospel, he's going to see water turn to wine, He's going to see sick people healed. He's going to see the multitudes fed. Andrew is going to see Jesus and his own brother Peter walk on water. The kid that he grew up with. He's going to see him walk on water at Jesus' side. He's going to see blind people see. He's going to see dead people get out of the grave and walk. The things that Andrew's going to see are incredible. And Jesus invites him, come and you will see. So they do. They come, and they will see. But what's the immediate response? What's the immediate response of Andrew after he comes to, to follow Jesus? And after he comes and sees Jesus who we are, immediately Andrew's response is to go straight to get someone else, to go straight to Simon. He, so he goes and gets his brother Simon, who we see Jesus is going to name, to, to rename Peter, and he goes to get him and bring him to Jesus. And what does Andrew say to Simon here? He says, we've found the one that we've been waiting for. The one that we've been waiting for. All of Israel's history had been spent waiting for the promised deliverer. And he's come. Andrew's found him. Andrew has to go get Peter. The one that, the one that our people have been waiting for for centuries is here, and I found him. You have to come and see. They're in the presence of a living legend. The answer to all their hopes and dreams is here. Drop whatever you're doing and come and see. I'm reminded of the, the movie Kung Fu Panda, when it's announced to the entire valley that Master Ugwe will finally name the dragon warrior, the one who was prophesied centuries ago to bring peace and protection to the valley, and the whole kingdom stops whatever they're doing, and they rush to the Jade Palace to come find out who is the dragon warrior. Drop whatever you're doing. Jack Black has to drag his noodle cart up a thousand steps just for the chance to peek through a hole in the wall and see if he can catch a glimpse of the dragon warrior. 
This is the type of building anticipation that prompts Andrew to rush and find his brother, the Messiah, the long-awaited deliverer, Israel's champion, the son of David, the king that we've been waiting for, is come. He's here, and Andrew has find, found him. This is the one that we've, we found the one that we've been waiting for. This is him. And he brings Peter to Jesus, and Peter comes to see for himself. Essentially, Andrew's invitation to Peter is not much different from Jesus's invitation to Andrew. Andrew says, we found the one we've been waiting for. Come and see. Come and see. But what if it's not that easy? Peter comes right away, right? Peter believes Andrew. He comes and sees. But you might be thinking, it doesn't always work that way. You can't always just rush right up to someone and say, hey, found him. Found the one you've been looking for. I know you're struggling. I know you've got doubts. I know you've got questions, but I've, I found the answers. Come with me. Meet me Sunday morning, Christ Fellowship Northwest. I found him. I found what you're looking for. It doesn't always work. People don't always drop what they're doing and come right away. What about the skeptic? Doesn't that make it harder? Doesn't that change the paradigm? Well, look no further than the rest of chapter 1. The very next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, and he found Philip and told him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and so did the prophets, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. We, find, we see the exact same thing. Jesus extends the same invitation to Philip that he extended to Andrew. Philip, just like Andrew, follows. He sees Jesus, believes him, follows, and, and Philip has the, the same, same in, uh, instinct. The same immediate response kicks in Philip's brain, and he says, I know a guy that needs to, that needs to know this. I know a guy that needs to come and see. So he goes, he finds his friend Nathaniel, and what does he tell him? The same thing Andrew told Peter. We found the one we've been waiting for, the one that Israel's history has built up toward, the one that Moses wrote about. All those things that we've been reading, that we've memorized since we were kids, everything Moses wrote, everything the prophets wrote, everything that our entire society and culture and lives is built around, found him. He's here. The Messiah has come. Come and see. But unlike Andrew, Philip is met with resistance. Nathaniel is a skeptic. Nathaniel doesn't drop what he's doing immediately and run to see Jesus and believe Philip just on his word. Nathaniel pushes back. He says, he scoffs, can anything good come out of Nazareth? This is a little bit far-fetched, Philip. You're telling me that the dragon warrior is from Pumpkintown? <laughs> Sorry, Robert, I had to. Seriously, Nazareth, what we've been waiting for for years, the legend, the king, he's from Nazareth. You could have come up with a better story than that. Philip. So how does Philip respond? He's met with resistance. He gets pushback from Nathaniel, the skeptic. Does he back off? Does he get argumentative? How is he going to convince Nathaniel? The invitation is exactly the same. He gets pushback. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathaniel asked him. Verse 46. Come and see, Philip answered. Come and see. There is a, 
a non-confrontational challenge. It's almost a dare. Come and see. You don't believe it? Come and see. Philip doesn't back down. It's not soft. It's not, it's not cowardly. He doesn't fold. He stands his ground. And he says, I, what I'm telling you is legit. You don't believe me? Come see for yourself. But at the same time, he doesn't, he doesn't meet the hostile pushback with more hostile pushback on his own. He doesn't challenge him. He doesn't go toe-to-toe. He just throws down the gauntlet and says, if you don't believe me, come and see. Why does, why does Philip respond this way? Why is the invitation simply come and see? I think the reason is because Philip knows that Jesus is fully capable of speaking for himself. Philip knows that Jesus is compelling and persuading all on his own. And Philip knows that all he needs to do is get Nathaniel in front of Jesus, and Nathaniel's skepticism doesn't stand a chance. Philip finds Jesus so captivating that he has no doubt that if Nathaniel were only to come and see, he would have no choice but to believe and follow. Do you have that kind of confidence in Jesus? Do you have that kind of unwavering confidence in Jesus' overwhelming magnetism? Do you believe in your heart of hearts that the most hardened skeptic would be completely undone if they encountered Jesus face to face? Think of the most hardened skeptic you know. The person that if one day you stood before the throne of God and you saw them across the room, your jaw would hit the floor and you would be like, I, how did they make it here? Do you believe in your heart of hearts that if that person were to encounter Jesus face to face, they would not stand a chance? And every cold, hard exterior that they have would instantly melt because Jesus is that beautiful and compelling. That's the kind of confidence that Philip, who just met Jesus yesterday, has as he comes to invite Nathaniel. Maybe your invitation to follow Jesus doesn't sound that convincing because you're not that convinced yourself. Maybe your invitation to follow Jesus, to come and meet Jesus, is full of caveats, assuming that when they do, they'll likely be underwhelmed and unimpressed. What would it look like to invite people to come and see Jesus with every confidence in the world that Jesus is as compelling as it gets. Charles Spurgeon once said, suppose a number of persons were to take it into their head that they had to defend a lion, a full-grown king of beasts. There he is in the cage, the lion's in the cage, and here come all the soldiers of the army out to fight for him, to fight for the lion, to defend and protect the lion. Spurgeon says, well, I should suggest to them, if they would not object and feel that it was humbling to them, that they should kindly stand back, open the door, and let the lion out. I believe that would be the best way of defending him, for he would take care of himself. The best apology for the gospel is to let the gospel out. Jesus is compelling and winsome. The best thing that you can do is invite others to come and see him for themselves, to bring them to meet Jesus and know that Jesus is, is persuasive. Do you want people to fall in love with Jesus? Introduce them to Jesus. He's lovely. 
You want people to fall in in love with Jesus? Jesus is lovely. Just introduce them to him, and half the job is done. So let's, let's look where, where, what happens. So that's, that's Philip's invitation to Nathaniel. Nathaniel comes to see Jesus for himself, and let's see what happens, starting in verse 47. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said about him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathaniel asked. Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, Jesus answered. Rabbi, Nathanael replied, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Nathanael's convinced. He meets Jesus for himself, and it does the trick. All of his skepticism goes out the window. Because Nathanael comes to Jesus, and he finds the miracle worker. Jesus sees him and knows him. He's meeting Nathanael for the first time, and he tells Nathanael things about himself that no one possibly could have known. And so Nathaniel believes. Nathaniel says, surely Philip must be right. I came and met this guy, never met him before, and he knows that before Philip came to get me, I was sitting under a fig tree. Surely Philip's is right. This has to be the Son of God. This has to be the King of Israel. Who other than the Messiah himself could know these things? And Nathaniel believes because he's met Jesus, the worker of wonders. And what's Jesus' response to this? Does Jesus say, thought that would do the trick. Pretty impressive how I told you that thing about the fig tree, isn't it? No. This is what Jesus says. You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You're going to see greater things than this. You're impressed by me telling you about that thing under the fig tree? Oh boy, are you in for a treat. If that knocked your socks off, just wait. You have only scratched the surface. Come and see, Nathaniel. Come and see things far greater than me telling you about you sitting under the fig tree when I wasn't there. Brother and sister, come and see. Come and see Jesus. Sure, you will see wonders. The water and the wine and the wind and the waves and the loaves and the fishes and Lazarus come forth. You will see all of that. Jesus does all of that, but that is only the beginning. That is only the tip of the iceberg. Come and see Jesus, and you will see heaven opened. Verse 51, truly I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Come and see Jesus, and you will see heaven opened. John chapter 14, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Come and see Jesus, and you see God himself. Heaven opened. The one who made the universe, the one who hung the stars in the sky like chandeliers, who painted the sunrise, who sculpted the mountains with the power of his word, who commands the beasts of the land and sea as if they're his playthings who formed you like a potter shapes clay with his hands and breathes life itself into your lungs, come and see Jesus and see him. See God. See heaven opened. Know that when you look at Jesus, you see what God is like. 
When Jesus stoops by the little girl's bedside and takes her hand, that is what God is like. When Jesus straps a towel to his waist and scrapes the scum of Jerusalem's streets off the disciples' feet, that is what God is like. When Jesus turns his face to Jerusalem and he steals his gaze knowing full well what waits before him and he goes to the cross anyway for the joy set before him, that is what God is like. So come and see Jesus. You will see wonders, yes, but more than that, you will see heaven opened. Hebrews chapter 10, we have boldness to enter through the blood of Jesus. A new and living way has been opened. You will see heaven opened. What was once closed because of the sin of Adam, the sin that was, is now ratified in you and me, is closed no more. Come and see Jesus and see the one who satisfied humanity's debt, who broke the chains of sin and put death to death. See heaven opened. Come and see Jesus so that one day you might say with the Apostle John, the one who wrote this book, who came and saw Jesus and saw heaven opened that you might say with him, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. I also saw the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. Come and see Jesus and see heaven opened. What are you looking for? What do you, what do you want? What are you searching for? What's the goal? What are you looking for? Imagine the best possible thing. Right now, close your eyes and imagine the best possible thing that you could come and find. That of all the things that you could possibly be looking for, if you could have your wildest hopes and dreams, what would you come and find? The kingdom's better. Then whatever that thing is you just pictured, the kingdom is better. Jesus is the best possible one-upper in all of history. Whatever that thing is you're looking for, the kingdom is better. You want your guilt taken away? Jesus takes away your guilt, and he credits to you his righteousness. You want your guilt taken away, and you want, you want Jesus' righteousness in, in, uh, in its place? Jesus takes away your guilt, he credits to you uh, his righteousness, and then he invites you to share in his inheritance, in the in inheritance of the Son, for, for all of eternity. Your guilt's taken away. Your, his righteousness is credited to you. You share in the inheritance of the saints that one day all will be made new and all will be made right. And yet Jesus can one-up it even further and he can say, even now he's with us. Even now he comforts us. He doesn't just offer you hope for tomorrow, but he offers you himself today. When, we, when, when heaven is opened and those who follow Jesus are caught up with him and get to, to ride into the kingdom and see it in all its fullness, the wonders will not cease. They will only get better and better. This is why C.S. Lewis coined the phrase further up and further in. 
For the rest of eternity, you will only go further up and further in. And no matter how far you get, and no matter how blown away you are, and how many times Jesus knocks your socks off, tomorrow he's going to one-up it. Tomorrow it's going to get a little bit deeper and a little bit better and a little bit sweeter. This is the kingdom. Not only eternal for all of time, but eternal in its depth of sweetness. It constantly gets better. Whatever you're looking for, the kingdom is better. So what do we do? How do we respond? How do we respond to Jesus' invitation to Andrew and Philip? To Andrew and Philip's invitation to Simon and Nathaniel? How do we respond? First, come and see Jesus. Accept Jesus' invitation. You won't be disappointed. You will find a treasure that is worth selling everything for. You will find a treasure that is worth taking everything that you have to the pawn shop just to get enough cold, hard cash on hand to go buy the field that that treasure is hidden in. It's worth everything. You won't be disappointed. Jesus is the best one-upper in all of history. So come and see Jesus and see heaven opened. But second, implore others to come and see Jesus. Be like Andrew and Philip. Be so captivated by Jesus that you have to invite others. When you come to the end of all things, when you stand before the throne of God, what do you want to be said of you? Would you rather hear, that guy was super chill, or would you rather hear, that guy could not shut up about Jesus? Be so enamored with Jesus, be so captivated by Jesus that you cannot help but bring others to him. Let it be said of you at the end of all things that you just could not stop talking about Jesus because you were so fascinated by him. Be so enamored with Jesus that you're like a four-year-old who just realized that he can jump off of his bed and land in a forward roll. That you have to come and see this. Dad, stop whatever you're doing. Get up from wherever you're sitting. Wake up from whatever Sunday afternoon nap you're taking. Stop the presses. Hold the phones. You have to come and see this. Have that level of fascination with Jesus. Be so impressed with the kingdom that like a four-year-old running to his dad, you have to shake, him, shake people awake and say, you can't stay here on the couch. The world will explode. Come and see what I have to show you. This invitation is effective. If we flip over even just a couple chapters to John chapter 4, starting in verse 28, we see this. Jesus has encountered a Samaritan woman at a well. He's told her things about her past that only God could have known. He's compelled her. And the woman leaves, goes back into town, and this is what she tells the people of her village. What are the first two words? Come and see. The invitation is still the same. She's met Jesus. She runs back to her neighbors, and she says, come and see. Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. Now, picking up in verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him. Why? Because of what the woman said. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified. He told me everything I did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. She said, come and see. And they did. They came and see and they invited Jesus to stay so that they could see for themselves. 
Verse 41, he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of what he said. They told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, since we've heard for ourselves and know that this really is the Savior of the world. This is the paradigm for evangelism and discipleship. Come and see. And when people do, when people come and when they see Jesus for themselves, they will no longer believe because of what you said, but they will believe because they've heard from themsel- for themselves and know that this really is the Savior of the world. So why aren't you? Why aren't you inviting others to come and see? Do you not find Jesus captivating? Do you feel the need to drop the invitation casually? Maybe you feel like you need to find something else to catch and hold people's attention. You give people Jesus kind of like you give your dog medicine. You hide it in a cheese stick and you hope that they get a little dose of Jesus along the way. You say, chew on this, this is something you'll like, and hopefully you get a little bit of dose of Jesus in there. What would you do if you were taking someone to visit the Grand Canyon for the first time? Would you book tickets to a show in Vegas to get them in the car and then just hope they noticed the Grand Canyon out the window as you drove by? Would you pull up to the edge of the Grand Canyon and wish that the parks department had built an amusement park there so that even if people weren't impressed by the views, they'd stay for the roller coasters and the funnel cakes? Would you begin listing off all the other national landmarks and the pros and cons of visiting each of them in lieu of the Grand Canyon? No, you wouldn't do any of these things. You're taking someone to visit the Grand Canyon for the first time, you'd put them in the car, you'd say, have I have, do I have something to show you? You would drive across the country, you would pull up to the edge of the Grand Canyon, you would open the door, grin from ear to ear, and shut up. Why? Because you had every confidence in the world that the Grand Canyon was going to speak for itself. It was going to be worth the trip, no matter how far. And you would sit back with glee and watch as your friend was rendered speechless. That friend who criticizes every movie and never likes any restaurant and is just a big, giant, walking meh. You would cherish the dumbfounded look on their face as they couldn't even feign disinterest because it was that impressive. Have that same unwavering confidence in Jesus and have it tenfold. Have that same unwavering confidence in the awe-inspiring beauty of Christ and his kingdom, that you can pull up to the edge of the kingdom, open the door, and just let them look and know that there's no way to not be blown away by it. So come and see Jesus. Invite others to come and see Jesus. And then lastly, be a, be a church where people come and see Jesus. Be a church where people come and see Jesus. This is the role of the church. The role of the church is to put Jesus on display, to display the kingdom before the world, to be a heavenly preview. When people see the church, they should see a preview of the kingdom that's to come. They should see a snapshot of heaven. They should see people who have no reason to sit next to each other and come break bread together and fellowship in the same room together because they have nothing in common but the blood of Jesus. The church should be the aroma of the coming feast. Scripture tells us that when the kingdom comes, that there will be a marriage supper of the Lamb. 
that all the redeemed, all the saints who have been, who have been washed by the blood of Jesus will share together in a feast. Thanksgiving dinner is coming. The church should be like the smell that drifts out of the kitchen before the meal is ready. That as you're sitting on the couch and you're watching the Dallas Cowboys play the Detroit Lions for who knows why, the smell that hits your nose of turkey and yeast rolls and mashed potatoes and stuffing and makes you constantly keep peeking in to find out when is the meal ready and trying to sneak a little piece here and there and getting your hand slapped by your mom and your grandma who tell you that you need to wait. That's what the church should be like, the aroma of the kingdom that's drifting into the present. This is why we're church planting in Halifax. This is why we're moving, why we're packing up and moving to Canada. Because the world does not just need to hear the message of the kingdom, they need to see it. They need to see the kingdom lived out in transformed lives. So we're moving to Nova Scotia this summer with our team, with Hannah Squires and Rebecca Perkle, to be the church, to be the aroma of the coming feast, to invite people to come and see Jesus, and to give them a place where Jesus' kingdom is put on display, where they can see a preview of what it looks like for God to take broken things, put them together, and make them new. And that's not just the job of pastors. That's not just the job of 64 missionaries commissioned by the IMB. That's the job of the, per of the church. That's job, the job of the church around the world, and it's the job of the church here in Traveler's Rest, South Carolina. It's one thing to move to another country because you feel like the Lord is calling you to plant and pastor a church, to go through the assessment process, to be approved by the mission board, and then work to raise the needed funds. And I can tell you personally that that is hard work. But I'll tell you who most impresses me is people like Elizabeth and Hannah and Rebecca. People who aren't paid to go pastor a church. But people who say, I have come and I have seen Jesus and there's nothing better. And I will spend my entire life inviting others to do the same. Wherever people need to hear, I'll go. Whatever visas need to be applied for, whatever job I need to work, whatever school I need to enroll in, however my vision for my family, my career, my life needs to change, Jesus has a blank check from me. And you have the opportunity to do the same. You can come and see Jesus, and then you can devote every single second of your life, every day that you have left on this earth, bringing others to come and see him too. Maybe you'll also end up in Nova Scotia. Maybe you'll move halfway around the world. Maybe you'll stay here in TR. But whatever happens, I can assure you this, you won't be disappointed. Come and see Jesus, and you won't be disappointed. You'll see heaven opened it'll be better than you imagine. Let's pray. Jesus, it is a miracle that you even extend the invitation in the first place to us to come. To us broken and rebellious sinners, who, like our father Adam, decided that living under your reign was not sufficient, but that we wanted to call the shots. That 
that you would invite us to come. And that your invitation to us to come would require so much of you. That you don't open the, uh, the invite to us to come and to see your kingdom lightly. But that you do so at the personal expense of laying down your own life. Of going to the cross. Of taking on the sin of the world. Of enduring separation from the Father. And yet you still invite us to come. You still open for us a new and living way. Would you help us to come and come boldly? Spirit, would you move in our hearts and soften whatever hardness is there that we might come? And we do, when we do, we have every confidence in the world that what we will see and what we will find will surpass our wildest dreams. That you who made us, who created us, who intimately know us, know far beyond us what will captivate and fulfill us. And that the kingdom is everything that we never knew we wanted and needed, but is all those things and more. And as we come and we see Jesus, would you immediately turn us outward? Would we be so overwhelmed and captivated by the beauty of Christ that we can't help grabbing everyone that we know? That with the, with the fervor and excitement of, of a child that we would say, come and see what I've found. That you have to come and see this wonderful thing that I've found. And would you make us your church? A church that would put, the dis that would put our, our Savior and his kingdom on display. That when people come here to Christ Fellowship Northwest, when they come to the church at Greer Station, when they visit Halifax, Nova Scotia, that they would see a people who are so enamored with Jesus that he has become the thing that they cherish above all else. And above all, we pray that, that those that we meet and that those that we invite and those we implore to come and see would no longer believe on account of what we said, but they would believe because they had seen Jesus for themselves and that they would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are the King of Israel the Son of God, the Deliverer, the long-awaited champion, and that you would become the King over their lives too. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.